Okay, so it's being uh, recorded. So the, the purpose of this Bible study is to study why we worship the way we do. Uh, and I'm recording this so that you guys can refer to it, um, uh, refer back to it in, in days to come and months to come. And for new members and people who join the church, I can uh, kind of send this to them and they'll have it. So uh, I want to answer... The, the frequently asked questions that people have when they come to Zion. So it's like, uh, why do we worship this way? Right? Why is the service in this particular order? Or why can't we be more flexible in the service? Things like this. Or uh, another question is, well, other LCMS churches, other Lutheran churches worship in this way or this style. So why can't we? Why don't we do it? So what I want to do is address that. And in years past, I've, um, I've gone through the liturgy in depth, and that's not what I'm going to do today. I'm basically going to give an argument, um, four arguments, for why we do what we do and the benefit of it. So it's really a defense of liturgical worship as opposed to uh, anything else. So who is this for? It's for Lutherans, for lifelong Lutherans who have just grown up uh, with the liturgy, doing what you're doing, but not knowing why you're doing it. Uh, and it's also for converts or those who are coming from other denominations and kind of see our service and see a big difference between the church they left and the church they're coming to. And so I want to put, put all of this to rest and uh, explain why, why we're doing this. Now, my main argument here is not going to be a, a refutation of contemporary worship per se. Uh, the reason it won't be is because um, contemporary worship is very difficult to define because it's always changing. And so once you say, well, this is what it is, and then someone says, well, no, this is what I mean by contemporary worship. I mean this music, or I mean this element, or I mean removing this, or I mean adding this and that. So since the definition of that always changes, it, it is like nailing jello to a wall. You can't, you can't get it to stick, and you, you can't refute something that there's no real definition for, uh, or no, no consistent definition. So what I want to do instead is just make an argument for liturgical worship. And just say, well, why do we have the liturgy? And just make a positive argument for that. Um, <clears throat> and, and so I think the best definition of contemporary worship is that it's just not liturgical worship. So I, that, that's the approach I'm going to start with. That's my presupposition. So I'm simply going to present to you why we do what we do, why we have liturgical worship. Uh, and I think that if you take it to heart, everything I'm saying... Um, then if you have an affinity for this kind of modern worship, I think if you take these things to heart, you won't really enjoy it going back to it. Um, just, just give ear and be open-minded on, on this point just to hear this. So, Okay, so what I want to do is start by saying there are two wrong reasons to use the liturgy. So the first wrong reason is this. <clears throat> Uh, is to say that we use it simply out of preference. So it's a matter of taste or, or style. Um, that the argument goes, well, worship uh, style is about preference. 
contemporary worship exercises their preference and liturgical worship exercises our preference. So we're just here because we prefer it. Um, and so it's just a matter of taste. And uh, you just kind of go to the church that you kind of prefer. It's a matter of opinion. And it's just about style and taste, which is really a postmodern idea that, we, that there's no objective truth or objective um, uh, beauty or, or, or anything behind what we do. Uh, my response to this would be, well, whose preference is it? Uh, whose preference? Who gets to decide that? Is it the pastor or the congregation's preference? Right? Um, is this done, if it's done by the congregation, is it done by vote? Uh, and then what kind of vote? Is it just a simple majority, like 51%, or super majority, two-thirds of the congregation that has to vote for this? Um, does everyone get an equal vote? Uh, do those who rarely come to church, who come to church maybe just on Christmas and Easter, uh, or do, do they get the same vote as those who show up every Sunday? Or do those who give more have more of a vote or weight behind their vote? Or those who don't give anything to the church in offering? Um, do recent converts who don't know much and who haven't been Lutheran long, um, do they have a vote in this? How, how would they make an informed decision on it? Uh, and how long do they have to be a member in order to have a vote on something like this? Um, does knowledge factor in? For example, <clears throat> what if I gave a test <laughs> and said, if you pass this test, then you can have a vote. If you know the whole catechism, then I'll let you vote on what we should do in worship. Well, th that would be a fair thing, too. Uh, that would be something on, based on knowledge or merit. Um, or maybe we let the people who don't come to church, the, the unbelievers, decide what we should do in church because maybe if we do what they say, then they'll come to church, right? That's another argument that, that people have. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of like a um, let's cater to them, a quid pro quo. You do this, you change these things, and then we're going to be there. So the, the real issue with preference is whose preference goes and whose preference is it? Um, and and, and the, my point here is that preference only works if some people's opinions are preferred over others. Because there's always going to be a disagreement, right? So somebody is going to be uh, in the minority. So then what, what do we do about that? What, how do we uh, make preference the, the standard here? Uh, how do we elect this on preference? Now, the second thing, uh, the second wrong reason to do or to have liturgical worship is this. Or time, you could say. Uh, we've always done it this way, right? Uh, that's a reason, but it's not a good one. Um, so, so to simply say, well, we've always done this this way. Uh, it's our tradition. Now, my response to this would be, how much time has to pass for that to be true? 
How much, time does, how much time do you have to go through to then say, well, then we've always done it this way. So if I introduce something today, how long do we have to do it for us to all say then, well, this is the way we've always done it, <laughs> right? How, how long does that, uh, is it a year or five years or, or 10 years or something like this? Um, also, whose past experiences get to define this, Right? Uh, so some say, look, we've always done, this at, done it this way at my church or at my old church. But the truth is you're not at your old church anymore. <laughs> you're at this church. Uh, and so that should count for something. We're not going to change things at that church. So then why would we try to change things at this one? So um, also, how much church history counts towards this argument? So do your 50 years in your particular Lutheran church trump, for example, 500 years of Lutheran history or 1,500 years of Christian uh, history in the, uh, since the time of the New Testament or 6,000 years uh, starting from the Old Testament? Uh, how, so which, which time period trumps the other? <laughs> So to say, well, I've always done this in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean that's what has always been done always, right? Uh, or throughout, the, throughout history. Um, so my main point here is that doing something for all of your life doesn't necessarily make it good because you could have been doing something the wrong way for your entire life. Um, and you guys know examples of this. I don't know. Um, things you do in your home, uh, the way you clean <laughs> clothes or the, you vacuum the floor. You could have been, oh, this is the way my mom did it. Okay, well, she did it the wrong way, <laughs> and here's the right way to do it, right? Um, so just time itself is an argument, but it's not convincing enough because you could do this with, with anything. Yeah. You know, people in other religions, they use that argument. Well, this is how we've always done it. They grew up a Mormon. Mm. This is how I've always worshipped God. Yeah. Right, exactly. That, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, if we simply use that argument and say that something is then true because it's all I know, well, then there's, there's a, that's not a good argument. Right? It is an argument, but it's not, it doesn't hold its weight. Um, so, so these are common reasons uh, why. <clears throat> This is kind of the, the lazy answer. So why do we do liturgical worship? Well, it's our preference. Okay, leave me alone. Or why do we do liturgical worship? Well, uh, we've always done it this way. We're not going to change it now, so buzz off or something. That's the wrong reason. The right reason is one. There's one right reason to have liturgical worship. And we don't do it because it's our preference only. We don't do it because we've always done it this way. We do it out of conviction. We are convinced why we do what we do. We're convinced that this is the right way and it is wise to do so. So we do this out of conviction that we have been persuaded by the word of God and by sound reason and by church history. And so what I want to do now is get into, uh, break this down to say, uh, what is this conviction? What are the reasons we are convicted to do this? 
Uh, and I think there's four major arguments for this. Uh, there's probably more, but uh, this is what I've come up with. Um, the first reason is this, is that the liturgy is ancient and historical. Uh, so that's the first argument, is that it's simply historical. <clears throat> it's not the main reason, but it is a good reason here. Uh, ancient and historical things can be wrong, like I just pointed out. Uh, nevertheless, I think this is a persuasive reason. Uh, there are some studies out there uh, that show the roots of the liturgy as we have it today. And like I said, I, I've done that in years past. Um, so here you're just going to have to take my word for it. But the liturgy comes to us from the Old Testament. Uh, it comes through the New Testament and even to now. And so if the church for centuries and centuries developed this and thought it was the best way to have church, then we need a very, very, very good argument to depart from this. To say, well, why? Uh, we need a very compelling reason to depart and ditch what they've done. Um, the, the truth is, is that this service remains intact for the most part through, through millennia. Uh, and somebody from a thousand years ago would have been able to worship here with us today, here in Winter Garden, in the same way. They would recognize these things. They're not going to know the language, but they're going to know the, the progression and the order of the service. The way they, they know that the sermon is coming. They know that the, the sacrament is coming. They know there's a, a preface. There's uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, all these sort of things. Um, so the onus here, or the burden, is on those who want to discard or change the liturgy. And it's on them to give a valid reason why we need to get rid of the liturgy. Um, examples of not good reasons are uh, the reason we want to adopt this style of worship uh, that's modern or, or um, contemporary is because people like it or it's easier or it feels good, things like that. Those aren't good reasons. Those are subjective reasons because for every one person you can say that likes this, I can point to another who says, well, they like this and we're back at preference again. Right? Uh, so what I'm trying to do is, here is show objective reasons, reasons outside of ourselves, rather than pointing to ourselves and say, well, this is my preference, this is what I, I like. To say, no, what is it about this that's outside of me and objective that's true? So uh, my main point is that I've never heard a good enough reason to depart from the liturgy, and I'm willing to hear uh, arguments on it, but I haven't heard one on it. Uh, and especially being one who came out of that uh, that mentality, that style of worship. I, was, I, I, I kind of uh, was into that for a while, a lot of the contemporary and modern stuff, um, and, and have actually come out of that to appreciate and enjoy the liturgical service. So, um, <clears throat> okay, so the first uh, point is simply that the liturgy is ancient and, and historical. Yes? Uh, yeah, I'm going to get to that next point here. So, uh, so this is the so so it's ancient and historical. It's it's uh, endured the test of time for for millennia. Uh, now, the second point is this: old churches throughout the world use the liturgy 
until very recently, and most of them still do. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you can summarize this as the liturgy being universal or Catholic. The word Catholic is, comes from two Greek words, kata, hole, that is according to the whole, uh, according to all. So that the liturgy is then a universal thing or a, uh, a global sort of thing. Uh, Christian churches throughout the world use a liturgy. So there are different nationalities. Uh, there are Russians and Nigerians, and Argentinians, and Spaniards, and Brazilians, and Arabics, and all these different languages who use the liturgy. It's not the same language or the same melodies per se, but it is structured, uh, ordered, and put together in the same way. Uh, and the music isn't just the, the music of the culture, it's countercultural music. So that when you go to Brazil, uh, they like samba, right? But the, but the Agnus Dei isn't set to samba. Uh, it's, it's in a reverent manner. It's a, a distinct from their worldly music. Uh, the same thing uh, throughout the world. Russian, uh, uh, for the, the, the Russians um, and the, uh, the, the Greeks and, and the, the Hispanics and all of these. Also, it's not only across nationalities, but it's also across denominations, so uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans and Catholics and Greek Orthodox, um, they all have a liturgy as well that's very, very similar to ours. It departs in, in a few minor ways, but it's very, very similar. In fact, uh, when Eric and I were in uh, England, I think it was England, um, we went to an Anglican church. That would make sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, we went to an Anglican church there. And... Um, and we knew the liturgy. We followed along exactly. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, so if you go to any part of the world or they come to us, this is the standard. We've had uh, two families come from Finland. They're not members, but they were visiting uh, Orlando. Uh, come from Finland and another one from Sweden. And they were here at different times in the past eight years. And they didn't know the language, but they were following along in the service. <laughs> It was amazing, and they, they knew everything. They, they were there with us. Uh, so, so this is the point. Anyone from around the world would be able to come to us, and we would be able to go to them. Um, again, this is another argument, uh, but it's not necessarily the only argument or the best argument, that it's historical or that it's universal. Um, this is my third point, and this might go a little long, so bear with me. But Lutherans have agreed to use the liturgy. They've agreed to use the liturgy. So uh, we can say it's for the sake of unity. Uh, there's an agreement here. We, have, we are united in this. So uh, we've agreed to have a common hymnal, the same hymnal, uh, this, and use the same liturgy. And this is why we have uh, one hymnal. It's also in our constitution the LCMS Constitution, for um, membership in the Synod. So let me, let me read a few things uh, here uh, for you. This is another argument. Again, I'm, this is not the only or best argument that it's just for the sake of unity because we all could agree to do the wrong thing. But this does have some weight. It's not persuasive in and of itself. But just consider how the Lutherans have talked about this. Um, uh, 
<clears throat> I want to read this from the Augsburg Confession. This is Article 7. This was uh, in 1530, 1529, 1530. Article 7 on the church. And this, what this article says is oftentimes used to justify or defend kind of the modern or contemporary worship and throwing out the, the, the throwing out of the liturgy. So I want to read this, and then I want to show you what the rest of the Book of Concord says. So this is what it says. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. Do you see this? Uh, so then you say, well, that refutes your argument. So here the Lutherans are saying, then you can do whatever you want. They, no, they're not saying that. They're responding to a very, very specific um, issue in the day. That the Roman Catholics were saying, you must do your order of service in this exact way. And if you don't, then you are anathema. Uh, so if you, if you cut out the prayers to Mary or the invocation of the saints, you are then if you're not observing that rite or that ceremony. And the Lutherans are saying, no, we can cut that out and still remain true Christians because we have the doctrine of the church and we have the administration of the sacraments. That's what they're responding to. Okay, now look at the rest of uh, the Book of Concord, how they respond. Um, Augsburg Confession, again, Article 24 of the Mass. It says this, falsely, are our churches accused of abolishing the Mass, that is, the divine service? For the Mass is retained among us. <laughs> that we were accused of getting rid of it because of what we said in Article 7. Uh, they're, they're accusing us and saying, oh, you guys just want to go off and do whatever you want. And then the Lutherans say, no, 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 we were falsely accused because, in fact, we actually retain it by choice. Uh, it is re retained among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. In fact, in another part, they say we have higher reverence than the Catholics when it comes to the service. Um, nearly all, look, nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except that the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns, which have been added to teach the people for ceremonies, for ceremonies are needed to this end alone that the unlearned be taught what they need to know of Christ. Okay, uh, next quote. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 of the Mass. It says, we do not abolish the Mass. We have the freedom to do it, but we don't. Uh, we don't abolish the Mass. For Mass is held in our churches on every Sunday. That is, they communed every single Sunday. And festival. And we refer to them simply to show that the Latin Mass, lessons and prayers are also retained among us. Uh, the formula of Concord, again, uh, this is the epitome, Article 10 on church practices. It says, we believe, teach, and confess that some ceremonies or church practices are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word. This is Adiaphora. But they have been introduced only for the sake of fitting and good order. We believe, teach, and confess that the community of God in every place, in every land, and at every time according to its circumstance has the power to change such worship ceremonies in a way that may be most useful and edifying to the churches of God. So here they're granting and saying, yes, uh, we're not being legalistic about this. The, 
uh, parts of the service can change and vary. Then it continues with this sentence. Nevertheless, all frivolity and offense should be avoided in this manner, in, in this manner, uh, or in this matter, sorry. Uh, that, yes, you can make changes, but they are to be thoughtful changes for doctrinal reasons and not frivolous changes. What you like is a frivolous thing. That is frivolity. Uh, to do something, just, so, so we're saying, yeah, you have the right to do that, but you can't abuse that right uh, and just do whatever you want, uh, just for the sake of uh, lawlessness or disorder. Um, again, the formula of Concord, solid, the Solid Declaration, Article 10 on church practices says, regarding the changes, they should do this thoughtfully and without giving offense in an orderly and appropriate way. Whenever it is considered most profitable, most beneficial, and best for good order, Christian discipline, and the church's edification. So that if, so that if there is going to be a change, it would be for the better. If you're going to change something in the service, then change it to be more reverent instead of less reverent. If you're going to, if you're going to make it more orderly instead of disorderly, right? So, so that the there, there is um, an evolution in this, a growth in this, but that it's for the better, that we're trying to attain something greater and not just ditching things because we don't like them or prefer them. Right? Uh, finally, <clears throat> that's the Lutheran confessions, what we confess. Now, this is the LCMS Constitution, and it says, this is Article 6.3, uh, if you want to look this up, conditions of membership says, Exclusive use of doctrinally pure agenda, hymn books, and catechisms in church and school. And school. <laughs> it's both. Uh, in the church and in the school that, we, you, that we're exclusive uh, in this. That we use the same agenda, hymn books, and catechisms. So the main point is that the liturgy isn't what we have to do. That is a lazy argument as well, to simply say, well, we have to do it this way. No, we don't have to. But we have agreed to. And that should count for something. The scriptures say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that if you uh, agree to this uh, by being in the synod, then hold up your end of the deal. I want to give you an analogy here. It's a, the most ridiculous analogy, uh, but it's one that I came up with um, if you think of a better one, let me know. Hold on. <laughs> uh, it's an analogy of uh, shirts so, and clubs. So imagine that I start like a red shirt club, and the rules are simple. I say, uh, in this club that I'm starting, uh, we wear red shirts, and no one is forced to be a part of the red shirt club. <laughs> okay? You don't have to be a part of it. Um, and anybody in the club can leave whenever they want. You can leave whenever, anytime you want. So it's free. There's a freedom here. But my only rule is just uh, use uh, a red shirt. Wear a red shirt. Now, what if somebody joins, uh, comes up to me and says, I want to join your red shirt club, but I want to wear a blue shirt. <laughs> um, I would say, well, this is a club for people who have and want red shirts. And if you want to wear a blue shirt... There's a club over there that wears blue shirts, and you can join them. <laughs> you don't have to be here, but you can join that club over there. Um, 
and they respond and say, well, I think that you're too dictatorial, you're too repressive, you're too strict, you're too by the book. <laughs> um, what if I wear a purple shirt? It's a blend of red and blue, right? That's a purple shirt, so why don't I do both? Um, <clears throat> so tell me, in this ridiculous example, who is being reasonable and who's being unreasonable? Uh, who's holding up their end of the deal and who's not? Or who's holding to their word and who's not doing that? Um, that's, that's the issue. Yeah? Clearly the person in the blue shirt. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. So, so that, that, I think this is uh, my analogy for what it's like when people in the LCMS in our synod, a confessional and liturgical church body, um, when people come to uh, this church and want to be a part of the synod, but then say, but I want to do something different, and I want to change and discard the liturgy. And we say, there are churches that have done that. They have done it completely, and you're free to go there. You don't have to be here. That's, that's the main point, is that we're not doing this out of compulsion. There's no, like, uh, fear. We're not going to get fined if we don't use Vespers, right, or Matins, or setting three. But we're just holding up our end of the deal. We said we're Lutherans. We know what Lutherans are, and so let's just be Lutheran, right, that, if, if that's what it means. Okay, so that's the... Um, that's a ridiculous example. Okay, that's my analogy. Uh, there's historical reasons, universal unity. Now, this last one. <clears throat> uh, oh, yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's what it does. It causes confusion at the very least. And it causes disunity and division at most. Um, and I'm going to get to that in this fourth point. One of the, this is the most convincing reason. Again, these are good, supportive reasons, right? Um, it's historical, but history could be wrong. It's universal, but everyone could be wrong. It's unity, but we could all agree to be wrong. But there's this fourth point that is the best point. And this is everything. And um, where's my marker? Oh, here it is. Uh, this is it. The liturgy was created around the means of grace, the word and the sacraments. It was created around the means of grace, the word and the sacraments. And I'm kind of cheating here because under this point, I have four other points. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, ju- just keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> we have one hour a week together as a congregation. That's 0.6% of a week. And we need to be efficient. We have one hour out of 168 hours we need to do, to be efficient, we need to do the most important things in the least amount of time or in the time given. That's efficiency. So what is the most important thing to do for a Christian? Or what is the most important thing for a Christian? It is 
the word of God. Yes, the forgiveness of sins. It is the word of God. So if that then is the most important thing, then we need to maximize the amount of the word of God in the time given. So let me ask you a question. This is, you can boil the whole argument down to this. What is better, a church with more of God's word, a church service with more of God's word, or a church service with less of God's word? <laughs> Obviously, uh, more, more of God's word. And my argument here is that the liturgical service is a service with more of God's word than any other service, than any other service on the market uh, in existence. It is the one service that is the most efficient, that packs in the word of God more in one hour than other churches can do in months. And I, I, I'm fully convinced of this. Okay, uh, so point A, let me... Uh, let me summarize this here. Uh, point A is that the liturgy is not something we do, but it is something that God does for us. So that it is something that God does for us. So many Christians blend their own works into their salvation. We've talked about this. I've preached on this sort of thing. Uh, that they'll kind of blend their own decisions or their own uh, emotions or their works and say then that, that is then the foundation of salvation. That's why I'm certain is because my life has changed or because I feel a certain way. Um, <clears throat> and, and what happens is because of that, that doctrine shows up in their worship. So that their worship style reflects and supports that doctrine. It was built around that doctrine. That decision theology then uh, built a liturgy or a service around that teaching. So that the whole purpose of that service is what to lead you to make a decision. Right? Um, so you, you can't divor di divorce these sort of things. Um, so it's no surprise that churches that teach that we contribute to our salvation also have worship and hymns and sermons that are about what we need to do to contribute to our salvation. But the liturgical service presents God as the main actor in the service. That he is the one who shows up. He is the one who gives. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who comforts, who accepts, who devotes himself, who receives us, who forgives us, who blesses us. This, it, it's him doing the work. So that if you say, well, what, what do I go to church? I go to church not to give to God, that's a, uh, uh, to give him praise. That's a secondary reason. But the main reason I go to church is to receive from God, receive the things that he gives. Uh, another analogy, uh, I come up with a lot of dumb analogies. Here's another one. Uh, so imagine there's a world-renowned chef uh, who invites you to his restaurant. He opens a restaurant here in Orlando. He invites you and says, um, come on over. All expenses are paid. You can eat any meal. You pick any wine on the wall, and it's yours. It's free. Uh, and you finish the meal, and then you say uh, compliments to the chef. Thank you to the chef. Okay. Uh, then the day after, somebody asks you, hey, what did you guys do last night? And you say, oh, uh, we, went down, uh, we went downtown to thank some guy in a restaurant. <laughs> and we said thank you a bunch of times. Uh, no, we wouldn't say that. We would say, 
We had an amazing dinner for free. The food was incredible. The chef is great. He's not only good, but he's also very generous, right? Uh, so the same thing goes for church. What people ask, look, why did you go to church? You don't say, oh, I go to church just to thank God a bunch of times or to, <laughs> or to tell him how I feel. Um, we say, I went to church because God is immeasurably good to us. And he has given us good things, gifts. And he did it, all of this, all of the things he gave me were for free. And he forgave all of my sins again and again and strengthened me and took away my worry and my fear. By the way, we did say thank you to him. We did thank God. But that was not the chief reason you went. That was secondary. The main reason is that you come to receive and you come to get what he gives. Um, so the main point here is that modern worship emphasizes uh, me. It's kind of uh, self-centered, egocentric, uh, my expressions or my response to God. But liturgical worship is about God and what he does and gives to us. It's not about my words about God, but about his word for us. So this is the distinction. Okay, the next reason is this. That the liturgy is biblical. Um, Oh, I lied to you, actually. I don't have four points. I have three. Okay. So, A, B, C. All right, B. Uh, Biblical. That theme, liturgy is biblical. I remember the first time I saw this, and it blew my mind. uh, Because I thought the liturgy was just a, a small committee of guys who just sat at a typewriter and typed this thing up and said, okay, let's, let's just do this. Uh, it comes from the Bible. The entire liturgy, all of the creeds are from the Bible. Uh, you'll hear, hear people say, look, in my church, we just use the Bible. We don't have any of all, all that tradition and liturgy stuff. We just want the Bible. And then our response should be, well, our liturgy comes from the Bible. It is the Bible. It's in the Bible. In fact, this is... We had uh, Professor, Dr. Reverend Paul Grimm here uh, for the past two months, and he walked us through the hymnal and showed us a few things. One of the changes of this hymnal, the Lutheran service book, uh, is including Bible references in the liturgy. And I remember when I first saw this, it blew my mind. I was in in Cambridge in England when I first realized this. Uh, Go to page 184. This is the setting that we use here at uh, Zion. And look at the right-hand side of each part in the liturgy here. And you'll see in small, it looks like italicized font, a Bible reference. So that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the very invocation comes from Matthew 28, 19. Uh, part B of that verse. Uh, the, the, the next part, this exhortation, uh, let's draw near with a true heart, Hebrews 10, 22. If you see it in those brackets, that means it's a, a paraphrase or the idea is coming from that. If you see, the, if it's just the plain text without any brackets, it's a direct quote from the scriptures. Psalm 124, verse 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
straight from the Bible. Psalm 32, 5. I said, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Straight from the Bible. This next part, the confession, is a summary of the teaching of Scripture. And then the absolution there is from John 20, when Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. Um, you continue, we have the, the glory, uh, the, the glory of the, the Kyrie, uh, Mark ten forty seven, straight from the Bible. The Gloria in excelsis, Luke two fourteen. This is the words of the angels, uh, and John one twenty nine, straight from the Bible. Uh, the salutation is coming from Second Timothy four twenty two, straight from the Bible. <clears throat> Uh, then you have, obviously, the lessons are directly from the Bible. This is the word of the Lord, the Old Testament, the psalm, uh, the gradual, the epistle, uh, the, the alleluia and verse, uh, the tract, all of that straight from the scriptures. Um, the creed, uh, there's something posted on Steadfast Lutherans that goes through the entire creed, um, and it goes line by line and shows where each line of the creed, uh, where it comes from, and it gives the reference in the scriptures. So that not one phrase in the entire creed is coming from man's imagination. It's just from the Bible. It's a summary. Uh, the offertory, Psalm 51, the psalm that David writes after he's confronted uh, uh, by Nathan um, and called to repentance after killing Uriah and uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, that's Psalm 51. Uh, we have the, the prayers of the church, we have the preface, 2 Timothy 4.22, um, Colossians 3.1, Psalm 136. The Sanctus is a mashup of two texts again. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, this is the words of the angels. Um, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. And Matthew 21, Jesus' triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The Lord's Prayer, straight from the mouth of Jesus. <clears throat> the words of our Lord, straight from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians. The peace of the Lord, uh, from the resurrection of Christ, straight from the mouth of Jesus. John twenty nineteen. The Agnus Dei, John 1, 29. <laughs> um, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Nunc Dimittis, the song of Simeon, Luke 2. Uh, we continue. The thanksgiving afterward. I'll give thanks unto the Lord for his good. That's Psalm 107, verse 1. Uh, the salutation, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 22. Uh, the benedicamus is Psalm 103, verse 1. The benediction at the end. This was Luther's addition to the liturgy. This was not part of the, the liturgy before. Uh, Luther added this, Numbers chapter 6, and it ends there. Um, Every part of the liturgy is from the Bible. It's biblical. Uh, so this argument that we're not, uh, we're just following the traditions of men, I mean, uh, th that's a ridiculous claim. Um, there, there's obviously order and sense to this. And like I said, we've talked about that order before. But I just want to show that this is from the scriptures. Okay, uh, the last part and the last argument is this, that the liturgy is Christological. Meaning, it's about Christ and him crucified for our forgiveness. That's what it means. <clears throat>
So to summarize, those three arguments are that it's uh, for us, that it is biblical, and it is then Christological. That's about what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he did, and the benefit of what he did for us. Okay, so uh, I want to show you with a few Bible verses. Um, I don't think I have to prove this to you, but I'm just going to do it anyway. That, um, that the centrality of the Christian life is Christ and him crucified. And if this is to be the content of our preaching, then it is to be the content of our hymns and the content of our liturgy. If this is, the point is everything revolves around this. So look, John chapter 5 verse 39 says, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says the scriptures are about me, about Christ. Uh, Luke 24, 25, uh, chapter 24, verse 25. And beginning with Moses, this was at his resurrection, uh, walking with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in the scriptures, in all the scriptures about himself. (laughs) Again, John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that the very reason these words are written is so that you would have uh, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you have salvation through him. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says, a very learned man, knowledgeable, a very smart, intelligent man says this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the content of the worship in heaven is what? They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. They're still talking about the crucifixion. (laughs) They're still talking about what Jesus did on the cross. So the main point is that the content of our preaching and our worship, according to the scriptures, is Christ and him crucified. So the question is, why should the service be about the word and the sacraments? And our response should be, what else should it be about? (laughs) Uh, This is the content of the Christian faith. Uh, Other kinds of worship um, will focus on emotions. So if worship is to be about emotions, then we should go for a style of worship that elicits the most emotional impact at the time. Uh, The most profound emotional impact. Uh, If worship is about style and about taste, then we would use the service that caters most to and fulfills the taste of most people's preferences, right? But if worship is about Jesus, uh, about Christ and who he is and what he's done, then we should use the style of worship that preaches Christ and him crucified. And since worship is about Jesus, it is going to look different than a service that caters to preference or style, or taste, or emotions. Um, again, the point of efficiency is that we have one hour together each week. And so let's hear as much about Jesus and his word 
as possible. I have just two assignments that I want to close on. I think we could do this here. Um, Assignment one is that we should go through the Lutheran service book, just Divine Service Setting 3, and mark all of the times the name of Jesus is mentioned, so, or, or the, the titles of Christ. So I want to do this. Can somebody keep tabs of this? Anyone have a piece of paper? Or, you, you got it? Okay. Um, I'm going to exclude the hymns, but of course you know the hymns are about Jesus too. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's one. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Again, uh, that's three. Uh, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Four. Um, Almighty God, merciful Father, in the confession at the very end says, uh, for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Again, the absolution says, by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy. Okay, what are we up to now? Eight, nine? Okay. Uh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Gl- uh, the glory next shall says, glory be to God on high. It continues. It talks about God, the Father Almighty. O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> and then at the very end again, thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost. The Lord be with you. Again. Um, I'm going to exclude the, the collect, but the collect is in the name of Jesus as well. Uh, the Old Testament lessons, I'm going to exclude that as well. Uh, the Psalm, just know that, that he's mentioned there. As well, the epistle reading, of course, almost every single time. The gospel lesson every time. Um, glory to be to thee, O Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Then we have the creed, and he's mentioned there again. Uh, and the hymn of the day, I'll exclude. The sermon, I'm going to exclude, but you know it's about Jesus too, if you want to add that up. Um, then uh, we have the... Uh, the offertory. Um, it's not explicitly mentioned. We don't have the Son or uh, uh, Christ, but we do have restoring to me the joy of salvation. Uh, I'll give you that one. We, we won't count that one. But you know that's about Christ. Okay, um, the prayers of the church. The Lord be with you. Uh, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord. Holy, holy Lord, Lord God of Sabaoth, um, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Who is that? Who are they singing that to? To Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus isn't mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, so we won't count that. The words of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed. The Pax Domini, the peace of the Lord be with you always. The Agnus Dei, O Christ, the Lamb of God. O Christ, the Lamb of God. O Christ, the Lamb of God. Uh, the distribution. Take, eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, and with the blood. At the dismissal, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen and preserve you. Uh, the song of Simeon. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Who is he talking to? Who is he holding in his arms? Jesus. The, the infant Jesus. I, I know a lot of people have this image that 
uh, uh, Simeon's holding Jesus and he's looking up, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. I think he's looking down at the baby and saying, now you, you made this promise to me. Uh, you are the Lord of, of heaven and earth. You let your servant depart in peace. Okay, um, then we have the, the, uh, the Gloria and uh, glory be to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, give thanks unto the Lord for his good. The prayer, the post-communion collect uh, through Jesus Christ, your son. And then the salutation and benedicamos, the Lord be with you. Blessed be the Lord. Finally, the benediction. The Lord be with you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Uh, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Uh, so what do we have? What's the number? I'm, I'm 40. 40? Yeah. Okay. I might have a Okay, so, so there we are. Uh, about 40 times the name of Jesus is mentioned uh, or uh, a reference or title of Jesus as Lord or Son. Uh, now, the second assignment is this. Let's do this again, but mark all the times that the forgiveness of sins or salvation is talked about. Um, I only have eight minutes left because the maximum recording time is an hour. So I'm going to speed through this. So bear with me. Okay, um, we begin, I'm going to exclude all the hymns again and the readings, but you know what that's about. Um, uh, beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. One. Um, we have a mention of the bitter sufferings and death of your beloved son in the confession. Uh, we have the forgiveness of sins obviously, in the absolution. Uh, we have the Lord have mercy upon us uh, also. We have the Glorinic Chelsis uh, that talks about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What is that? Forgiveness. That's salvation. Um, so that's mentioned there. Uh, we have the collect. Again, I'm going to exclude the readings. We have the creed. Uh, the creed is there. And talks about uh, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Uh, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Here's the offertory. Uh, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Another reference. Um, we have the Sanctus now. Uh, um, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is a reference. This is more implicit. But what is he coming to do? That's his triumphal entry. He's going to the cross. Uh, we have the uh, Lord's Prayer, the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our trespasses. We have the words of our Lord, the Verba Domini, uh, that take and eat. This is for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Uh, that is, what peace is that? This is the peace of salvation, that God is not angry with you or he doesn't remember your sins anymore. Uh, that's a reference to salvation and forgiveness. The Agnus Dei, Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and it's repeated. Uh, take and eat. This is for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, to preserve you unto life everlasting, the, the, um, the, the blessing. Uh, let your servant depart in peace. Let him die in peace. What does it mean to die in peace? It means that, you have, that, that God is not angry with you. You have salvation. Um, a light to lighten uh, the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Israel. Um, then we have, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. Um, we won't count that, but 
he is good specifically because of his forgiveness. Um, then we have the prayer. Uh, that uh, Look at the, the second prayer there. <clears throat> we thank you that for his sake you have given us pardon and peace in the sacrament. Uh, that is uh, the, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and then we have uh, the, everything at the end. The benediction that the Lord would bless you and keep you um, is the opposite of the Lord cursing you and casting you away. That is a reference to salvation. So how many references do we have there? 16. Okay, so we have 40-some mentions of Christ uh, and uh, 16-some references of his salvation. And then we have the epistle lessons. We have the hymns and we have the gospel and then the sermon, which is chiefly about Christ and his forgiveness. So I want to ask you this. Can you fit any more Jesus and forgiveness into one hour? Uh, Probably not. Um, There's nothing better than the liturgy or nothing that speaks of Jesus and his forgiveness more than the liturgy. In fact, I'll, I'll say this. If there were a service with more of Jesus and more forgiveness, then we would use that one. Um, And I promise you have my word. Uh, But the reason we use this service is because objectively it is the best service out there, the best one on the market. If you find a better service, then I want to see it. But we're not attached to the service because we're stubborn German Lutherans or Norwegians or whatever. Uh, We're attached to it out of conviction because it delivers Christ and him crucified and the gospel that we need every single day of our lives. It delivers Christ and his word. Uh, You're not going to find any more of God's word in one hour than you do. It's like trying to drink from from a fire hydrant that's that's opened. Uh, There's so much, um, and and it hits everybody uh, in in different ways uh, throughout the service. So the point is we want that. As Christians, we want Christ and his cross and his forgiveness more than anything else. So that's why we do it. We're convinced of it. Um, Okay, that's the end of it. Uh, I'll open up for questions. I know we have like a minute, so I'm going to turn off the recording here.